Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I ask my guests the question, tell me the five insignificant but memorable things from your life you would choose to put in a time capsule to preserve, four that you cherish, and one that you would like to be rid of. And, amazingly, they do tell me. My guest this week is the writer and comedian Andy Hamilton. His natural wit is often called upon by the makers of comedy panel games on the radio and television, such as The News Quiz, Sorry I Haven't a Clue and QI. And he's a performer on several of the shows he writes, as well as characters in the children's cartoon series Ben and Holly's Little Kingdom and, most notably, Peppa Pig. But it's as a writer that he's really made his mark, writing, often with his writing partner, Guy Jenkin, and sometimes even producing and directing such shows as Not the Nine O'Clock News, Who Dares Wins, Alas, Smith & Jones, Drop the Dead Donkey, Trevor's World of Sport, Ballot Monkeys, Outnumbered, and most recently, Kate and Koji, starring Brenda Blethyn. I've been lucky enough to work with Andy throughout my career, I'm delighted to say, most commonly in the long-running radio comedy Old Harry's Game. And if Satan exists, let's hope he's something like Andy's brilliant portrayal of him. Now, due to lockdown restrictions, I had to speak to Andy via Zoom, so the sound isn't perfect. But it's good enough to hear what Andy Hamilton has chosen to put in his time capsule. Okay, so what's your first thing? I'm wearing my first thing because this, as you can see, is a Chelsea 1970 
shirt. So this mm. is the shirt that was worn for the FA Cup final against Leeds, yep. which was the first FA Cup final ever to go to replay. And that was the emotional high point of the first 20 years of my life. <laughs> because cause I know all boys, you know, like little boys, a lot of little boys are obsessed with football. But I was insanely obsessed. <laughs> From the age of three, I had a little woolen ball and I used to kick it remorselessly against the kitchen wall all day long. <laughs> and I was obsessed so early because we lived, um, well, we could see Chelsea, Chelsea's ground from my from our bedrooms. You were born in Fulham, weren't you? Yeah, no, and, and behind Chelsea Football Club is Bromsden Cemetery, and our house backed onto Bromsden Cemetery, so I could see the back of the North Terrace and all the floodlights and everything. So from a very early age, I was aware. And every Saturday, of course, this thing started making this extraordinary hum mm. of noise. And like when Chelsea scored, the ornaments used to tinkle on our mantelpiece. <laughs> and also every Saturday, there'd be no traffic in our road. It would just be a wall of identical-looking men <laughs> walking up Ifield Road towards the stadium. So I would yeah. look out of our first floor window and I'd watch these thousands of men pouring towards this thing that, that my brother, who was seven years older, was going to. And he was already educating me, you know. So I went to my first game age five in 1960 and Chelsea won 4-2 uh, against Newcastle. And bizarrely, all the goals were headers. And a man called Ron Tyndall scored a hat-trick for Chelsea. And I think, me and my brother can't quite remember, but we think that my brother took me. Now, my brother would have been 12 and I was five. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, now we'd be put into care instantly. <laughs> so and then I went, you know, regularly after that. And I lived from Saturday to Saturday um, I ran away from home once, but I only ran as far as Stamford Bridge and spent <laughs> the day watching the players train in the forecourt. Uh, and then um, and then I was hanging around because there was a game in the evening, a young England versus England game. And Terry Venables drove in in his car and he stopped the car and said to me, when are you here this morning? And I said, uh, yeah, he said, your mom, do your mum and dad know you're here? And I lied. I went, uh, yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's how intense that uh, relationship was. And I went to away games when it was, you know, practical. But Chelsea never won anything. You know, Chelsea were a team. They were, uh, they were everybody's second favourite team because they had flair players. You know, they had the Charlie Cooks and the Peter Osmond. But they never, I never saw them win anything. Um, I experienced disappointment. They got to the cup final in 1967 and uh, lost. And I went to that game. Mm. Um and I used to have to stand on a stool because my brother made me a stool because, you know, on terraces, it was always a battle for me to get a viewpoint. And at Wembley, what happened was we were 2-0 down with about six minutes to go and Bobby Tambling scored. So we were back in the game and the crowd surged forward as they did. And of course, what sometimes happened with the crowd surge was I parted company from the stool. Yeah. <laughs> but after the surge, there was this pause and I said to my brother, he said, where's your stool? And I said, I don't know. And then Pete uh, he called out and said, anybody down there can see us find a stool? And got thrown <laughs> back up through the air. And a voice went, here's your fucking stool. So it obviously, it obviously barked the shins of about, you know, 200 people. So, yeah, it, it was my life, really. Mm. Um, 
And so when they got to the uh, FA Cup from 1970 and they won, in the end, I didn't know we could win. You know, that was the first time I experienced that exhilaration of everything going right. But um, what happened was it, there was the first game was at Wembley. Yeah, I remember watching it on television. Yeah. It was exciting. It was an exciting game. Yeah, I mean, there were two extremely skillful teams mm. who hated each other. There'd, there'd been a, <laughs> a, a, a narrative over the previous four or five years where Leeds felt they'd been the victim of many injustices. Um, and they had been a bit unlucky, if, it's, if truth be told, against us. And the pitch, they'd let the Horse of the Year show happen on the pitch the week before. So it was basically a beach, the pitch. <laughs> but, I mean, both teams, although it's remembered as being the most brutal cup final, both teams had fantastically skillful players so they managed to create quite an exciting game anyway we we should have lost but we equalized near the end and then the replay was going to be two and a half weeks later at old trafford yeah in term time so i persuaded my mum to write me a note i would have been in the fifth form yeah and um i piled into the back of my brother's 1959 red porsche now the thing you should know about the, the there is no back to the 1959 red porsche and there's a little void behind the seats but there are no seats no per se it's a space that i was kind of scrunched into and um and we drove up to manchester all the and, way to manchester yeah and the game you know was an extraordinarily dramatic game although even more violent than uh it's it's now. I think they studied it, and the modern ref said that about eight players would have been sent off under the modern rules. And then my brother drove us home. You know, got back in the early hours of the morning, and then went to school with my notes, which I handed over to my form teacher. But we had a deputy headmaster called John White, who, of course, was nicknamed Chalky, and <laughs> although actually. He was, in many ways, quite a remarkable man. But to our eyes, he was the Gestapo, right? Yeah. And he knew everything. He he had wonderful intel. <laughs> a few years previously, a, a Chelsea Cup tie had been cancelled with eight minutes to go because the floodlights had failed. And they rescheduled it for, because uh, it was during the, the a power crisis, they rescheduled it for a Monday afternoon. And a whole load of us bunked off to go and watch it. And Chalky White went to the match and putting <laughs> oh, no. kids in detention. That's how thorough he was, right? So anyway, and he had a voice like this. And you had to be careful because he laid traps. Anyway, in the afternoon, I think it was, I was going between lessons. And he was for Hamilton. And I stopped. <laughs> and he said, how are you feeling, Hamilton? Are you all right? <laughs> I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I think I'm all right. So he said, what did you have? Was it one of those mystery 24-hour bugs that are going around? And I said, yeah, I think it was. Uh, yeah, yeah. He said, and was the Manchester Air a bracing tonic for you? <laughs> so I thought, I'm going to brass this out. So I said, I'm sorry, sir, I don't, I don't really understand what you're – I'm sorry, I don't understand. And he leant into me and he went – don't push it and walked off. <laughs> and, uh, you got away with it, though. Yeah, but that was that was the high point for me. And I think I put it in a time capsule as a 
to try and convey really the sort of absurd, irrational intensity that that people feel sometimes for you know the the, the closeness they feel yeah. with with that experience. It's weird because I don't go now. I very rarely go. I mean, I'm still out of my chair. If I'm watching them at home and they score, I'm still out of my seat. But, yeah. but you know, it, it's the intensity has has gone. But I'm pleased I had that experience because mm. it, one of the things it does is it's it is a kind of preparation for life because you get a lot of, there's a lot of frustrations, a lot of disappointments, and then things can suddenly, you know, you look at Leicester, you know, suddenly. Yeah. Everything goes right and life becomes wonderful for them. Then reality kicks back in. And, you know, and I think as a kind of way of um, toughening you up in mm. a way, the fact that if you lost on a Saturday, I mean, I didn't let it spoil my week. You know, I wasn't one of those people who if we lost on a Saturday, I was in a terrible mood. So the following Wednesday, I did did learn to to let it go. And similarly playing, I've, you know, I've kept playing and I just... I just love that experience of being a boy again. I think. Yeah, and, yeah. And, yeah. There are, there's a pub near me in Tunbridge Wells, which is obviously known as the Chelsea pub. Right. And it's full of, uh, well, Chelsea supporters, but people who've basically moved away from the area because they got fed up when they got promoted to the Premiership. Yeah, ruined it. No more fun anymore. Yeah. We used to go and have these fantastic fights. Oh, what, you know, they were hooligans wanting to They were, move. yeah. They were fed up the fact that it all become so civilised. Oh, right. Mm. <laughs> I had the same experience. I was born near Millwall, so I do remember those great crowds of you know, yeah. capped, overcoated men yeah. all walking, yeah. you know, with smog. Yeah. Yeah, it was very weird. So I do remember that image. Millwall, that was, that was the one ground where I went once and thought, I don't think I'll go back there again. <laughs> the old one, Cold Blow Lane. Yeah. Yeah, we used to play wild goose chase on those terraces. Right. When I, I must have been four or five years old, on my own. No, I love I love the old stadium. And if ever a shot comes up that they're doing some kind of archive piece and I get a glimpse of the old stadium, um, I made a piece called 11 Men Against 11, which yeah. was about the corruption and commercialisation of football. It was a comedy starring Timothy West and James Bolam. And, and we were filming at Chelsea and it was a building site. But we went in. He said, "Let's we'll sneak in. We could see a way in." And we walked in. We went up the back of the east stand. We looked down, and there was one slither, like a little wedge of, like a cheese wedge, a slither of terracing that was left yeah. with the stanchions and the you know they used to lean on or sit on as I used to, and um, and it was where I used to stand with my brother. Oh. Uh, it was that bit by the Bovril sign next to the shed and it was just the last bit ah god how brilliant no i've filmed things in football stadiums we have together with trevor's world of spawn yes yes because yeah. we were filming during a live game yeah and i don't if you remember the people around us didn't know we were filming and we started the first scene and we had a system whereby the first ad was in the row in front of us and i don't know if you remember but trevor cooper mm. had to start a speech and we're doing it to make it more real, but also because of that thing, as you know, the problem of the eye line of following the game. But, of course, it's natural if you are following the game. And so there were, you know, about, I don't know, 12,000 people there. And um, there was that great moment where Trevor started the speech, you know, so we did, this is the first take. And Maureen scored after about 40 seconds. So we all <laughs> had to jump up and roar. And then he said that sort of being like a two-minute gap. And then Neil Pearson stayed in character and turned to, to Trevor Sorry, you were saying. 
uh, were you able to use it? No, because uh, of the two-minute gap. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> but what was interesting was we managed to do it. Very few people tweaked that we were being filmed, I think, you know, because of the ambient noise around you, you know. Uh, I think to them we were just men sitting in the crowd talking. Yeah, chatting. perfect. Uh, looked great. It looked great. Yeah. Have you traumatised any of your children because of... No, fortunately, my son is not really very interested in football now. Ah, so. Well, my eldest thinks football should be banned, and, you know, that's one of the many upsides of the coronavirus outbreak. <laughs> but um, I traumatised Robbie by... But both these stories involve Man United. Mm. We played... Chelsea played Man United in the semi-final of the FA Cup, and um, I don't know, you may remember the game. Chelsea went one up. Yeah. Then in the second half, we were playing quite well. We were, it was a very muddy pitch. And um, Craig Burley decided to pass the ball back from the halfway line. And the pass never made it. Got stuck in the mud. And Beckham, very young, very young David Beckham, latched onto it and scored. Mm. And I was watching it with Robbie, who was king on football and would have been about mm, six, I suppose. Yeah. And I don't quite know what happened, but... I, I became aware that I was curled up in a ball on the floor. <laughs> obviously been shouting things directed at Craig Burley. And when I sort of uncurled myself, Robbie was sitting on the sofa looking quite scared. And he went, <laughs> Dad, who's Craig? <laughs> so I'm shouting, you fucking idiot, Craig, I'm going to fucking kill you. You know, what it's like. And then... When Chelsea played Man U in the European Cup final that we won't dwell on, when um, Frank Lampard equalised, I roared so loud that Isabel, who was only a little girl then, thought the boiler had exploded. <laughs> <laughs> and was terrified. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, think. that's football for you. They're fine. It's, they're good life lessons. All right, well, let's take your... Gorgeous Chelsea shirt with the badge, the rampant lion. Yeah. And we'll put that in the time capsule. Okay, good. <laughs> Fantastic. That's in there. So what's uh, what's your second thing? My second thing is a box set DVD of I, Claudius, because I think it would be good to have something to convey how brilliant a thing television can be Yeah, when it's done well and... You know, because that was my other love affair as a child. There was Chelsea and then there was television. Because my brother Pete is a very good brother, but he was seven years older than me. So inevitably, you know, when I was 11, he was interested in girls and pubs. And, you know, so the TV was a, you know, big personal friend Mm. when I was growing up. And I was trying to think of, well, what show, if you wanted to say television doesn't exist in the future. You know, say, you know, which, say, I don't know, say it's been replaced by other technologies or if you wanted people to try try to understand uh, the hole it could have, you know, I just think that that's the show that most epitomises the best of television because the writing is brilliant and the the acting is fantastic and it doesn't matter that some of the camera shots are wobbly and occasionally the set moves, you know, because the story mm. is so gripping. And, and and the sections, say, with Caligula are the best examples of sort of black comedy mm. and it's moving. And, and we used to, sometimes as a family, we would watch it 
in one go, you know, straight through from start to finish. And uh, a while back, there was a, a special anniversary edition of um, Robin Ince and Brian Cox's show, The Infinite Monkey Cage. Mm. And it was like a sort of mega version, uh, which was filmed. And they had lots of people who'd been on the show coming back. And, you know, it sort of it was like four shows in one. So I walked into this green room and in the corner, looking rather quiet, uh, was Brian Blessed. That's unusual. So I know. So, of course, it, yeah, it didn't last. So anyway, <laughs> and I thought, well, I, I'll just make sure, you know, break the ice. I said, oh, I'm Brian, I'm Andy. And I said, I've, I've got to tell you, in our house, we watched like Claudius. Uh, we've watched it through many times from start to finish. It's the most fantastic series. And your portrayal of Augustus was just wonderful. And your death scene was is the most extraordinary thing I've ever seen. You know, you know most extraordinary death scene I've ever seen. And he went, yes, it was voted. Most extraordinary death scene by a screen magazine. I said, you know, <laughs> I'm not surprised because it's brilliant. And I said, I've never seen anything like it because I don't know for those who don't know the scene he dies in front of you but he doesn't close his eyes so you see the light going out inside his head and then he is as dead as a looks as dead as a fish on a slab you know but the camera stays on him throughout this whole process and it's about it must be about two and a half minutes three minutes Mm. and the camera just pushes in and pushes in and pushes in and he doesn't flicker. I mean, there's not, you know, it's extraordinary. And it's more, I can't really do it justice. It's not just, it, there's something, it, it's an extraordinary piece of acting. Anyway, I said to him, you know, it's a remarkable. He said, I know, I know, that, <laughs> you know, that director, Herbie White, fucking hated me. <laughs> and I, said, I said, oh, right. Well, he said, yes. He said, you know what the bastard said to me? He said, we're going to keep the camera on you. While Sean does a speech for three minutes, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he said that they interestingly they had a bit of um, curtain behind him. Yeah, the stagehand was just wobbling the curtain because the director didn't want people thinking it was just a freeze frame. Yeah, it's got to be movement in it, but he yeah. couldn't move. And uh, anyway, so then I made the mistake of saying, "Yeah, but how did you do it? I mean, because it's just just the." Just the mental process i said how do you do he said i'll show you you say action go on so what he said say action (laughs) and by now the whole room was listening you know so i said "Uh, action and he did it he he just went into this you just saw the light go out in his eyes and he stared in the space and it was quite eerie yeah the room went quiet and we're just sitting there looking at brian being dead and then he suddenly went, that's how I did it. <laughs> God, it was it was a fantastic television series, though, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, Sean Phillips is extraordinary. And, you know, that monologue she does to the gladiators is a great comic monologue, you know. But it's, but it's a wonderful example of that thing that, you know, you, you'll have often heard me bang on about, about how you can have comic beats and highly dramatic beats really close together. In fact, they heighten each other mm. much as they do 
in life. Wonderful. I know what I'm going to watch on telly tonight now. That's yeah. it. I'm going to definitely get that. But it's something that I'm sure will always be being rediscovered by new generations. Yeah. Our kids, they were quite young when they first saw it, but, you know, it's still a remarkable piece. And you're right, you so quickly forget that the sets aren't that great, no. that actually the makeup, because they age them a lot during it, don't they? Yeah. So you really quickly ignore that. It doesn't matter. Yeah. The acting is so good. I think that's true of all the stuff we worry about. You know, when you're out filming and there's someone there saying, oh, I'm not sure that will cut because he's got the glass in the wrong hand. And, mm. and then you watch great movies and you watch pieces where you're so held by the story that you... You don't care. Nobody notices. No. We did a movie called What We Did on Our Holiday. At the end of that movie, there is a scene where Ben Miller literally changes costume between shots. <laughs> and no one has ever come up to us and said, why was Ben Miller in a completely different costume? You see him thrashing about in some water. Yeah. And he comes back wet in that costume and then he's, because of we had to edit out a scene, he is then completely dry in a completely different costume within the same scene. So it's about, I think there were about five shots between, and nobody ever said, because it's at that moment you're very involved with the larger issue of something that's happened to Billy Connolly's character. Mm. But it's a classic example of people not, once they're involved, they won't spot all sorts of things. Yeah. Well, I hope a few um, a few directors are listening. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever sat in with an editor, but I always think that editors are, are probably the people to learn off. I've worked with some good, very good directors, but I think you learn more sitting next to the editor. Mm. And you say, well, what about the cut? And, and the editor, if they're experienced, they look at you and they say, no one's going to see that. No. Because they're experienced in knowing how the human brain works and, you know, what lies you can get away with. Yeah, yeah. Other, their other favourite is sound will fix that because they know that <laughs> if you hear something, your brain will tell your eyes that that's what it's seen. You know. Yes. Uh, I once made the mistake of. Do you remember Who Dares Wins? Yeah. The chat show, you know, on Channel Four, and it was a lively show. I was co-producing it, and lively. I'm being euphemistic now. You know, we had a lot of. It was like a big Italian family. We'd have a lot of arguments about which sketches should be in, which jokes should be in. And I felt that uh, two of the performers were patching together something that was too, too sort of surreal to, you know, and I forget why I said it, but I said, oh, right. And that, well, how does it end? What, you know, and I said something like cue the hippo. <laughs> anyway, we, we had a very keen, a very nervous floor assistant called, uh, sorry, stage manager called Richard. And uh, he, he would always come up with, to me with long lists. And because the content of the show was changing hour by hour, he, he, he had an impossible job. Anyway, we were in rehearsal the day before show day. And he said, right, okay, just bring it up to speed. I've got the hippo. <laughs> and, and I, because the turnaround on that show was so hectic, I, I said, what, what are you talking about? He said, the hippo, the hippo. And I said, I'm sorry, for the doctor's sketch, you were talking about it, and you said you wanted to end with a hippo coming in. And I said, <laughs> it's, a I've got a, it's a costume. It'll need two people inside it. And, and I said, Richard, I'm so sorry. I said, that was just a kind of frivolous 
example. <laughs> and he said, you don't need a hippo. I said, no, I'm really sorry. And he, he, he burst into tears. Oh, no. And, and I felt awful, you know, but that was that. And that was an experience on my part that I hadn't really registered. Someone's writing down everything you say and you need a check. Yeah. They probably could have used a hippo on iClaudius. You could have lent it to them. Yeah. There we are. So that's it, all right? We're going to put iClaudius into the time okay. capsule. What a brilliant television series. Yes. So that's two we've done. So we've got uh, two more nice ones and one you don't like. Okay, we're going to take a short break here for some adverts. We'll be back with you very soon. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. Okay, let's find out what the third thing is that Andy Hamilton would like to put in his time capsule. All right, then. A uh, nice one is uh, my mum wrote a memoir, you know, in the period uh, when she knew she was uh, terminally ill. She wrote a memoir of her life, which we were very pleased about because um, uh, she had an extraordinary life. But I think I'd put it in a time capsule because mm. beyond its significance to myself and the family i think i'd put it in as a kind of social document uh, a kind of snapshot of how you know our generation were fantastically jammy in the sense that we've lived until now at least (laughs) through a period of peace and prosperity you know other parts of the world maybe not but here we've lived through a period of remarkable stability really but of course my mum's generation and even more her mum, my maternal grandmother, lived through extraordinarily socially turbulent times where there was no safety net. And mum's account of her own childhood and, and her mum's life, you know, well, they read like a sort of a Catherine Cookson novel, mm. but on steroids. Mm. My maternal grandmother, um, she was in service at Windsor and she got pregnant. And uh, the father was a secretary to the Kaiser who'd been over on an official visit. He said, don't worry, I'm coming over on the boat to marry you, make an honest woman. And he died on the boat coming over. So she was very young. I think she was 17 or 18. 
and she had an illegitimate child with all the stigma that came with it. That was my auntie Lona. Then she then she found that then she met another man after the war and married him, had a couple of kids, lost one kid to Spanish flu. Um, and then he was involved in a tragic accident and then committed suicide because he couldn't work. And he, um, So she was left with um, three children, no income. She moved down to London. And she just her life was just a catalogue of... Um, but she must have been an extraordinary woman because there was... Mum was a very loving person and my Uncle John. There was clearly a lot of love in the family. Mm. And it's just that there are stories in there that you think are, you know, things that I think would be almost impossible to imagine in terms of probably, I mean, we've just, this morning, we've just had the Ocado man come around with our poop, which at the moment is like like Father Christmas. Yeah. Know? But in Mum's memoir, she recalls hearing her mother crying because she literally no food in the house and she didn't know whether there would be food the following day. And there's one story where mum was a Geordie, but they had to leave Newcastle after my granddad died and they came down to London and her, her mother was doing several cleaning jobs a day just to try and um, put food on the table. And mum had gone to school. Nobody understood a word she said. Hmm. So she had, kind of befriended a little girl and brought that girl home to tea relentlessly every day for a couple of months and just imitated her. But she said that one day, you know, a, a sort of charity inspector came around and they were distributing boots to poor children. And a little humiliatingly, they made all the children stand on the chairs so they could see what their footwear was like. And mum stood in a chair and this it was clearly decided that she was um, in need of... So they gave her these great, clumping, sturdy winter boots, yeah. which she hated. Mm. She looked at them, she thought, they're horrible, I'm not wearing those. Um, but it was winter, and it was... Stone, but she, So she tied them around her neck, and she walked home in her own shoes, and her mum opened the door and saw her with these new boots around her neck and burst into tears. And I think my mum from a child's perspective, thought, oh, look, and now they've upset my mum by humiliating me with it. But, of course, they were tears of relief mm. that, that, and, you know, elation that her daughter had been given these snowproof, waterproof boots. And I think that's kind of story, you know, I can't even imagine that, really. No. And no. certainly our kids, I think, can't imagine it. No. So I think I would put it in as a reminder that there once was no safety net. In fact, that has been the norm for human life. So we shouldn't undervalue the safety net. And it, I think that's what's really interesting about the coronavirus crisis. Yeah. It is, it is reminding people of the importance of safety nets. Yes. And how lucky we are that as a society, we now deem that to be morally necessary. Because mm. it wasn't. But there have been a lot of efforts over the last sort of, 20 years to take those away saying they're they're pointless we don't need them you know i mean i, I remember margaret thatcher saying you know the there's so many excess beds in yeah the... why have we got this spare capacity and the health professionals were saying well you have it for a rainy day you know mm. but that sense that well, why would things go wrong i think my grandparents and my parents grew up with a very real sense of things can go wrong like that yeah you know 
but dad was a prisoner of war he he knew things can be fine one day and the next day you know they'd grown up through the depression mm. and i think what happened was all those years of affluence we lost that yeah we lost that sense and something like this is reintroducing us to that experience but what's good is it's no longer deemed acceptable you know our grandparents lived in fear of the workhouse mm. and that kind of solution is no longer deemed acceptable so i think that's why that uh, the memoir would be an important uh, thing to put in a time capsule yeah lest we forget yeah because the consumer society we, we've been encouraged they you know to become consumers and we've been encouraged at the cult of the individual yeah. you know we've had 30 years because you're worth it and what this is bringing home is that just to survive just for the lights to come on and for water to come out of the taps, that relies on your day probably relies on about 150 different people making it to work mm. just for you to do what you do. Mm. And I think that that, you know, there's going to be an upside. That will be another upside is people will be reminded how interdependent we are. You know, mm. that individualism is all right up to a point, but Ultimately, you know, in the modern world, it's the collective that will keep people going, you know. Yeah, that's why your mum's memoir is in the time capsule, yeah. to remind you. You can have a look and go, oh, yeah, sorry. Sorry, mum, I forgot. Yeah. Okay, uh, so we've got two more things, Andy. Right, well, the other positive one, it would be a stapler. Mm -hmm. The personal significance of the stapler is that it represents, um, I've had a 40-year writing relationship with Guy Jenkins which is still going and yeah. we're still making programs together. And this, the stapler <laughs> represents a kind of unforgettable moment, which was me and Guy have only ever had about four rows in 40 years, you know, and they've always blown over. We've, there's never been a lingering row, which is good because quite a few writing partnerships in the end, they drive each other nuts, you know, mm. uh, but there was one moment, we were writing Drop the Dead Donkey, and we got into quite a heated debate about a visual joke. And the visual joke was that Dave, the character played by Neil Pearson, was not sure whether Alex, who was played by Hayden Gwynn, had got wind of the fact that he had told that he, Dave, had been telling people that they had slept together. And so he didn't know... Uh, if she knew, mm. and this joke involved that as he sang to someone, Hayden swept across the set, and as she went, she was going to staple a piece of paper to his chest. <laughs> um, and I can't remember what it had. It had something like wanker or something written on it. I can't remember that. But anyway, so me and Guy got into this very lively discussion about whether it would be possible to staple to something to someone's chest. And I said, yeah, it could look a bit broad, couldn't it, Guy? I mean, particularly to Chester, you know, you've got the, the sternum there, haven't you? You know, how would you, you know, <laughs> oh, I think you could do it. I said, well, they'd have to stay completely still, wouldn't they? Start to recoil from the stapler. And and uh, I said, oh, I'm just not sure it's physically possible to, you know, and, and it got more and more heated. And then as the, the argument reached its climax, Guy said, of course you can do it. And he wrote something on a piece of paper, picked up the stapler, and then stapled it to his leg. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, there, see? And um, so <laughs> little rows of blood 
was appearing through his trousers. And uh, <laughs> a guy said, actually, that's quite painful. And, <laughs> uh, and I had to say, well, no, you have proved the point, guy. It is possible. He said, mm-hmm. yes. And then we had the problem of, of getting out, you know, you know, the staple removers. <laughs> and I said, have you got a staple removers? I said, I've I did have one, and I kind of like it's like I had to go outside. Has anyone got a staple removed? Because guys stapled uh, a piece of paper to his leg. <laughs> General kind of uh, what's he done? What is this? A long story. But I thought that moment. Uh, what I love is that the creative tension of you know we were road testing that moment so rigorously mm. the guy was prepared to inflict physical pain on himself. Um, and that's how important comedy is. Yes, yes. <laughs> Thank God we haven't got a joke where someone had decapitated themselves. Um, of course, he was stapling it to himself. So yeah. your argument still stands. Would Neil stay still as Hayden yeah. stapled it to him? I, I dare not say that to you. <laughs> we did do the joke. I mean, of course, we did it with double-sided sticky tape. It wasn't, yeah. uh, we didn't staple anything to an actor's body. And it was a very successful moment, comically, you know, because she just swept across frame at speed. And she did it so deftly that it looked fantastic. But um, Just a normal stapler, not a large one, just a normal uh, stapler. Normal one, yeah. Right, there, are just sitting in the corner. I'll give you some spare staples just in case you want to practice stapling things to your leg. Yes. While you're coping with uh, the difficult thing in your life or the thing that you you, you want to get rid of. Right. Well, I'm someone who likes the sound of my own voice in the sense that I'm very opinionated and, you know, and rather talkative. However, I'm not a huge fan of the sound my voice makes, you know. Yeah. Uh, I suspect I'm not alone. I think probably quite a few people feel that way. But my, you know, I know that none of us sound the way we sound inside our own heads, you know. No. Um, because, you know, the heads are sounding forward. It's very bassy. And, but I have to say... The discrepancy is phenomenal. <laughs> My oldest son had a friend who, who used to liken me to a robot pirate, was what he said. And <laughs> so it's always a surprise to me that I sound like that. And it makes me ever so slightly allergic. So I don't listen back to shows and stuff. You know, well, mm. it's this way, I don't sit and listen. I've never played stuff back. I mean, the discrepancy between what I hear and what the world hears is so great that I remember when I, I started out in radio because of our mutual friend, Jeffrey Perkins, mm. and Jeffrey had just started as a trainee producer, Radio LE, and I just started as a writer, and I was walking up the corridor, and um, I could hear this sound coming out of Jeff's office, and I went in and I said, what are you doing? What are you, doing? Are you editing something? He said, well, that's you. That's that sketch you did in Edinburgh. That's that I recorded. That's <laughs> that's you. That I said. What is that's you? And I seriously, I looked at him. I said, I think you're playing it at the wrong speed, Jeff. <laughs> he went, that is what you sound like. Oh, and no. the, we had this weird sort of mixed standoff. Was it? No, no. You, you, and he had an old. It was a tape recorder, of course. Mm. And I said, you sure you know how to work this? And <laughs> I mean, in a way, I'm I'm not complaining because. The fact that my voice is distinctive has been of you know great use in a way. I mean, it it gives me a style and a and a sort of recognition factor. But yeah, I don't like hearing it. Mm. Very much. 
So I think um, in order that I wouldn't have to hear it, you know, <laughs> put it in a, a time capsule and let future generations go, that's a weird voice. Yeah. <laughs> that's playing at the wrong speed, I think, isn't it? Yeah. And the other downside of my voice is that it is distinctive enough for strangers to recognise it. Yeah, of course. Which is nice if they want to say, oh, we love old Harry's going. That's a lovely experience mm. that I'm very lucky to have. I remember I turned down an offer to do the Nesquik Bunny, and, and I turned it down primarily because I thought, what's going to happen is if this advert becomes a kind of successful advert, yeah. <laughs> for the rest of my life I'm going to walk in shops, I'm going to ask for something, and then go, oh, you're Nesquik Bunny. Yeah. And I thought I'd better not be identified with anything because – my voice is too recognisable. But do children recognise you in the street? Do they pick you out from Peppa Pig? Well, if I spoke, they might do. Although, you know, a lot of... I've been stopped quite a few times, usually by young mums, who'll say, oh, do you know who this is? This is Dr Elephant. But, of course, the child just looks at me in bewilderment yeah. and then looks at their mother as if to say, what are you talking about? A, he's not an elephant. He's not a two-dimensional elephant. And uh, I don't think any child has spontaneously spotted it, no. I have to say, having uh, stood beside you many times making radio recordings, I, I wouldn't change your voice at all. For many people, it is the voice of the devil. Yeah, it has been a great asset to me, and I know that, I'm aware of that. But, you know, it's not the one I would have chosen in the shop, you know, <laughs> at the outset. <laughs> Okay, Andy, thank you very much. I'm going to seal up the time capsule. Libby's finished her knitting. Have you done the hat, Libby? Yeah. Oh, no, it works really well. It's great. You are? You see? Yeah, Yeah. it's lovely. Hold it there. Hang on, hang on. I'm going to get my camera. Take a photograph of it, Libby. (laughs) Anybody who wants to know what it looks like, I'll put it on on the website. Oh, fantastic. There you are. (laughs) That's the hat. That's what Libby did during our interview. She will accept orders for (laughs) most things. Obviously, if there are orders, I'm going to take 10%. You understand that, don't you? (laughs) She can knit most things, like boilers or... And a cardo delivery van would be useful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I could actually knit toilet rolls up here. Oh, toilet rolls, yeah. Oh, brilliant. Well, it's lovely to talk to you. It's great to see you. Yeah. Keep well, Andy. Yeah, keep well, Mike. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Andy Hamilton, and a special guest appearance from his knitting wife, Libby. You can subscribe to this podcast to stream all episodes for free on Acast or your own favourite podcast provider. And you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook for all the latest about My Time Capsule. You just search at MyTCPod. Or you can follow me, if you like, at Fenton Stevens. And if you have the time, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate us and write a short review. My Time Capsule is a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton Stevens, and the music was by Pass the Peas Music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you get the chance to listen again soon. Cheers. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.